and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Law Prof Blog, anonymous social media personality and law professor. We will discuss Law Prof Blog's article, Law Reviews, Citation Counts, and Twitter, Oh My, Behind the Curtains of the Law Professor's Search for Meeting, which was co-authored by Darren Bush and published in the Loyola University Chicago Law Journal. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brian, for having me. Great. So I was wondering if we could start um, by talking a little bit about the context in which you wrote this very amusing and provocative article. Um, I understand it was uh, in relation to a symposium that was put on by Loyola Chicago. We could talk a little bit about the symposium, who was there, sort of what the purpose was, and and how your article fit into that context. Well, when I put the symposium together uh, with the Loyola University of Chicago, the whole notion was that we would talk about what's wrong with legal scholarship and what's right with it. And so what I basically did was uh, I invited uh, people who I, I considered to be uh, very thoughtful about this area, uh, uh, Caprice Roberts, Carissa Hessick, Orly Lobel, uh, Mark Lemley, Anthony Kreese, uh, Spencer Waller, and I'm, I'm forgetting several names because it's two symposia ago. And we talked about what, what's working in legal academia and what's not. Um, and apart from the fact that many of the articles are spaced uh, once after a period, there are some other problems that we have. In <laughs> and, uh, and, and in fact, uh, you know, my article is spaced once after a period um, to, to comply with the Loyal University of Chicago. Um, um, and here I thought you were a, r- a rule breaker. I, it was done behind my back by Bush and the, and the editor. And so I, I'm, I'm upset about it, but I, could, I was outnumbered and, and, and outgunned. Um, because Bush is from Texas. So in any event, um, the article is about basically how the game is rigged. There are substantial entry barriers for those of us who uh, want to get our message out. But the, the metrics that are used to determine the quality of the, of the message uh, have some serious feedback loops. One of the feedback loops we talk about is how we couldn't help but notice that if you graduate from a top 10 law, uh, law school, you're more likely to place in a top 10 law review. Uh, we also happened to notice at least for one year, it wasn't as consistent the following year we took the data, that there were some biases towards those who actually work at top 10 law schools to get into top 10 law reviews. And so those things seem to, to suggest a problem. Um, in terms of how we measure quality in academia. And so we walk through all of that in, in citations and the problems with, with, the, with that. And we've come to the conclusion that, that the game is rigged. And if, if you're frustrated by that, what can you do to make the game better? Or to make your game better? To make you happy? <laughs> yeah, so maybe maybe you could talk a little bit about sort of why it is that legal scholars are engaged in this project of producing legal scholarship in the first place. In other words, kind of what's the point of doing what we do and how does that intersect with 
the methods of evaluating the quality or kind of the proxies that we tend to kind of institutionally use for better or or for worse in evaluating the quality of legal scholarship. I mean, you talk about top 10 law reviews. What does that even mean? Well, um, hang on. I got, I got to quickly Google what law professors do. Um, but, <laughs> um, but my own thing about this is we are told, a lot of us love to write, and, and we're told we ought to write and, and publish well. And it, it, it becomes this, this quest for external validation that we see people um, approving of, an, of our article in some way. And the best way to do that um, for purposes of getting a pay raise or having academic prestige is to see ourselves cited, uh, particu- you know, particularly if it's by somebody important, like um, SCOTUS. Um, another way to do that is to be placed well. Right, some people in a very some some law students at the top ten law schools took the time to read my article and didn't reject it in five seconds like they do for most, and so that that feeds me feeds my external validation. Mm-hmm. My thinking about scholarship is that we we do that's not the right reason to do it, and I think most of us do it for the reason that we like to be creative, we like to think about problems, we like to solve problems. And we want to make a kind of contribution to the world. And I think that's the reason that most of us write. And I think that creativity notion is hijacked um, by, this, by this quest for metrics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, why do we have sort of the law review hierarchy out there in the first place? I mean, sort of where did it come from? Why does it persist? And why do people seem to accept or even internalize it so readily? Well, I think there's, there's a, two competing thoughts that take place. If I am in the top 10, then of course I have every incentive to keep that hierarchy going. If I've done well placing, then I do as well. After all, it's, it's not easy for people to recognize the privilege they have. And I, I know personally, it's, it's incredibly difficult for me to recognize that, that you know, what, what, what privileges I have and possess and invest in. I, I have to think about it very carefully. And when you recognize that, there's an opposition that happens where you think, I'm privileged and I, I got something because of my privilege, but I also want to think that I deserved it. And those seem to create some sort of binary opposition in the, in the eyes of, of, of people who think about this. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Um, mm. So I think it persists because we want it to persist. And mm. if you're not successful, you, you want to try to be successful and prove that you can be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it does seem like there's an element of it that's like a collective action problem in the sense that nobody professes to love it. And yet it's something that you can't really fix or change easily individually. But then as, as you kind of suggest, it seems to me sometimes like it's not just a collect, collective action problem. I mean, there's a way in which we've sort of institutionally internalized this hierarchy as a legitimate way of judging or being a proxy for the quality of work that 
almost supersedes in a sense, in many cases, sort of actually engaging with the underlying work itself. I mean, I've kind of jokingly said that like, you know, hiring committees and P&T committees, they don't know how to read, but they certainly know how to count. I, I totally agree with you. And I, as soon as I figure out what you mean by collective action problem and what those would mean, I'll, 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 I'll figure that out. But, but the, the quality issue is, is exactly that. If you use the signal of publication ranking as the proxy for quality, is it really endemically true that the articles that are published below are therefore of lower quality? And we take pains in the, in the article to talk about how this isn't really a, 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 a market that clears well. Um, it's not, it's not, uh, there's other markets that are, that are not homogenous products like electricity markets, um, airlines, a whole host of others. And, and, and price is clear, um, fairly well but article placement's tricky they don't it doesn't if you get an offer from a higher ranked school that doesn't necessarily mean you got an offer from you know from everyone below that mm. yeah yeah and in the article i mean <clears throat> one thing that really jumped out at me is the the way in which you sort of track along a number of different metrics just how kind of discriminatory the process seems to ultimately be whether by design or or by accident i mean not just in terms of the quote unquote pedigree of of the author but also across kind of socioeconomic background and in particular um you know for minoritized groups and and women as well sort of like what kind of numbers did you see on that front well, we're, we're we're taking it. We're we're trying to make this more time series, but it, it's very difficult if you if you're if you're a minority, if you're a woman, and you're not in a top ten law school, it becomes much more difficult to uh, to, to get published in a top ten law review. And and the numbers. Uh, Race is a little trickier to figure out. I can look at people's biographies and see how they self-identify with respect to gender. Um, but I, I was much more careful with respect to race calculations because I, uh, I, I don't want to make assumptions about people. Um, sure. But even in the best case scenario, it was, it was incredibly low. Mm-hmm. 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 I mean, and, and why do you think that is? I mean, is it partially a function of just kind of cascading privilege effects or are there sort of subject matter issues that sort of screen out people who are writing in in certain areas or benefit people who are writing in in other areas i'd like to object that was a compound question (laughs) object away (laughs) (laughs) we're not in court sorry keep forgetting all right so I think it starts at, as one enters high school, actually. And I think it even starts before that. I think there are tremendous amounts of entry barriers for women and minorities. And I sort of walked, we, we sort of walked through this in the article, um, you know, whether or not uh, I actually know I should take the LSAT <laughs> in law school. Mm. Uh, did I even think about going to college? Uh, and 
um, depending on my socioeconomic status um, and where I've come from, I, I may not even know if I go to if I go to school that I should be going to this higher ranked school. Um, there's lots of anecdotal evidence of people who who are from lower socioeconomic statuses who did not even know that they were supposed to apply to higher rank schools. Mm. And then once you get to the higher rank schools, well, you know, uh, I've certainly gotten in trouble for for uh, talking about classism in academia, but I, I think the evidence is pretty strong that it, there's there's not a level of parity there. So mm -hmm. if my if my chances of being a law professor hinge upon me going to a top ten law school, and then I've got a then we've already got a problem. And mm -hmm. Eric Siegel's work. Um, kind of shows this. Um, if you want to be a law professor, you better come from one of those law schools. So if I'm, so if I'm, a, if I'm a, a minority or a woman or someone from lower socioeconomic status who didn't go to one of those law schools, then of course I'm going to have, that, that, that's going to keep the, uh, causing trouble for me in terms of publication as well. Mm -hmm. As I, mm -hmm. and I might place in a lower, uh, a lower, uh, tier law school. And if you talk to people lower tier law schools, they will be, they'll be happy to spend hours upon hours talking with you about the troubles they have with placing articles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I recall reading something a while ago from Jason, Jason Brennan in his usual cynical kind of vein. I mean, he observed from the perspective of like hiring committees and, and, presumably law review selection committees as well, right? Where they've got a lot of work and they want to minimize it. Like using these kind of rough heuristic hierarchy proxies just makes their job so much easier um, and so much less costly for them at, you know, at the cost of creating or perpetuating these, these hierarchies. And I wonder if that suggests that, you know, we shouldn't more aggressively articulate an obligation on the part of the people in those positions to think more proactively and and um, and programmatically about the decisions that they're making and why they're making them. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a break from this for a second. I'm gonna go practice talking. Uh, I'm gonna go practice my speech with them by walking to this wall. Um, <laughs> and, and I say that because. That it's very hard to get, I mean, even, even the cases, there are certainly cases of explicit bias, but there's certainly some subconscious bias that takes place. And I'm going to be searching if I'm on the hiring committee, subconsciously at least, for people who are like me. And if you're not cognizant of that, you're going to end up with a lot of people who look the same, sound the same, come from the same place, and it makes for an incredibly boring academy. Yeah, no, I mean, I've definitely experienced that. I mean, I think there's a lot of, there've been so many circumstances I've experienced where people have reflexively said like, oh, what a great placement. Or you're like, oh, well, it was in, you know, Harvard Law Review. It must be good. You know, this kind of, this person went to Harvard. They must be really smart, you know, which is probably true, but it also kind of comes with a sort of negative implication about anything that doesn't have that label on it. Oh, I agree. I think it's used as a, as a, uh... It's a, kind of a weapon in one sense and a shield in another. For example, white male gets a Harvard Law Review placement 
and we give them the presumption that the article is of quality because it is in fact published in Harvard Law Review. And then if a, a, a black woman publishes in Harvard Law Review, then the question becomes, well, is it really a good article? And I've seen that happen on hiring committees, and that, it always troubled me that there is not a consistent application. Even if that is a proper presumption, I think it's crazy to think it is. Um, mm-hmm. I've, mm-hmm. I've not seen a consistent application across candidates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, in this age of open access and internet and, you know, transaction or information costs, transaction costs around publication and distribution of scholarship that have effectively fallen to zero, you know, why do these proxies persist? I mean, why do we still even have law reviews in the first place? Is it just for the purpose of perpetuating hierarchies or do they actually have some sort of valuable social purpose still? You're going to try to get me in trouble, Brian. Um, <laughs> um, hmm, look at the time. Okay. So uh, I, I think law reviews do so- serve some limited purpose. I think it's useful to, to have things like symposia about where we actually combine um, authors to talk about a, a, a single issue or problem. I think the rankings of those journals don't matter or shouldn't matter because they're all on Westlaw. I think, in fact, if law reviews died a horrible death, which would be sad for the law students because then it would be harder to send a signal that they are worthy of jobs, then we would still have some academic portal like Social Science Research Network. We could all read our everyone else's stuff. Mm-hmm. Even if Social Science Research Network, which has caused some difficulty for some of us in terms of putting our stuff out there because of copyright issues or whatnot, um, someone like someone like Brian Fry could start with that. He seems like a creative <laughs> guy. He could start the Brian Fry Research Network, and we could upload our articles to Brian Fry Network, and he could make sure that we aren't copying. Oh wait, Brian Fry doesn't care about copyright. <laughs> I encourage it. I encourage it. (laughs) We actually don't even have to worry about that. And you could set that up and we could all start downloading from the Brian Fry network. And then lighter can talk about, in fact, if we, if we want to do this kind of game over and over again, we now have a new metric. We have the social Mm. science downloads versus the Fry downloads and and how to rank those. (laughs) I don't think it's a competition, but there could be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess one thing that has always struck me, you know, is what the perpetuation of this hierarchy and the kind of implicit market failures that come along with it say about legal academia and and legal scholarship. I mean, you know, I can't help but observe that, I mean, you know, law professors seem to profess to know how to solve market failures in every market except the market for legal scholarship. And most of those are not economists, so it makes it even weirder. There is no incentive to solve this. That's the problem, right? So, and, and it's not just the rankings. It's the fact that we have so much stuff we're publishing at an increasing rate. Um, I remember when I went into this this uh, academic gig, people were talking about how the, the standard for tenure was two articles. And if I gave advice to just write two articles, I, I, I would be engaged in malpractice. Um, 
So mm. there's more stuff out there. And so how do I, because we're all in fact engaged in some side-by-side play. It's like kindergartners playing, you know, what are you doing? I'm building blocks. What are you doing? I'm building a spaceship, right? How do I measure the inherent quality of the spaceship versus the blocks? And we, mm. we haven't gotten there. Instead we go, well, the teacher praised you for a good job with the blocks, but didn't praise that kid for, for a good job with the spaceship. And that's the purpose of the law journals. So, I mean, like, is this, is this hopeless or are there kind of incremental things that we as law professors or maybe even as law students, you know, working on law reviews can do on the margins to make improvements both in particular circumstances and also across institutions? Well, I, I think, I think the law students are doing all they can. After all, when I submit my article to uh, a, a, a higher ranked law journal, they read it within seconds. And <laughs> it's impressive, isn't it? Can. I don't think we can have them work any harder than that. Um, yeah. On the other hand, um, I think it's, it's, it's almost like suggesting um, the law schools stop submitting data to U.S. News and World Report. It's, mm. it's, it, individually, it's not going to happen. And, and there might be legal implications if they all collectively decided to do so. Mm. I, don't think, I don't think that's going to happen either. I think there are people who are very invested. Um, some schools do bounties um, if you publish in a higher-ranked law review. And some people get mm. the bounties mm. all the time, and some people never get them. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've heard about that. It seems, you know, just one more way of perpetuating this kind of problem and such an intentional one too. Well, I, there's so many of us. Um, and I, I think there's, and I mean that law professors, um, and we are all trying to find our way around and are looking for to, ways to make ourselves stand out in that crowd. And so these invidious distinctions, uh, to borrow a term from Thorstein Veblen, kind of, kind of uh, help us to find our way, see where we are in the pecking order, much like eighth grade. Um, you know, of course, I've chosen a different path. I've chosen to engage in a partial half-life of, of, a, of a Twitter comedian. But most <laughs> professors want to be taken seriously all the time, and, they, and that's and it's very hard to 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 get that recognition in a, in a crowded field. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wonder if you have any advice or thoughts or even just reflections on sort of the experience of being a law professor engaged in this hierarchical sort of struggle and like how to sort of make the best of it, you know, as it were, like, what can people do? What do you do? And what kind of thoughts do you have about sort of ways of minimizing the pain and maximizing the, the good parts of the job? Well, I'm not always successful at this. I mean, it really bothers me sometimes because of my own upbringing. Uh, I, I, I was not born in, into a, a very wealthy family and, and my family had some its own struggles. But it, my, 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 my advice is segmented. If you're not tenured, 
do not listen to me at all. You're <laughs> emailing me saying, you screwed up my life. Don't, don't listen to me. Um, play the game. Be good at the game. Get high, published in high-ranked law reviews. Do all that stuff. And when you get tenure, then you get to decide what, what you want to do, what you want to be. And you could spend a lot of your time focused on how others perceive you. Or you could spend your time, perhaps, helping others, helping foment policies, helping, helping those who come after us, um, doing things that actually improve the discourse. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it does seem to me like it, there's this constant risk that the sort of the struggle for tenure is so long and in many respects, so kind of consuming that it's really easy to internalize and rationalize the system itself by the time you've gotten there. I mean, it's almost like a kind of Stockholm syndrome or something. I, I agree. And, and, and some people don't get tenure. And so what do you, what advice do you give them? Um, they're stuck in that perpetual loop where if they write the wrong article, it doesn't place well, uh, or, you know, uh, then, then, you know, what do we, what should we do? Should we fire them? Um, the legal writing professors, uh, are, are have high barriers you know, in terms of, of getting article placements. That's why they publish and kind of their, do their own thing. Um, mm -hmm. But I think I think the problem is if you if that's all you think about, then that that is that's going to eat you. What? And, mm -hmm. and you see people get tenure and they're just totally lost. They just have this burnout and don't know what to do. Uh, they finally got what they wanted, and now what do I do with my life? It's a midlife. It's almost like a midlife crisis, <laughs> mid-career <laughs> crisis. Yeah, I mean, and one thing I've really noticed as well um, is that there's a way in which there are a lot of kinds of activities that kind of pro-social activities that law professors are in a unique position to engage in, whether it's you know benefiting their students, benefiting their discipline, benefiting kind of legal scholarship more more generally, um, that they don't necessarily seem to get a whole lot of kind of institutional or social credit for. Um, and it seems to operate as like a disincentive, obviously, for people to do those kinds of things, e even though it would be better if more people uh, were were to do them. I mean, have any thoughts on that? Like, what can we do institutionally to like encourage better and more productive citizenship and sort of ways of sort of mitigating some of these problems? Well, I think the schools are starting to give at least lip service to other types of avenues of, of, of experience. Um, but then it comes down to pay raises and they go right back to the articles. So should blog yeah. posts count? Um, what about blog posts that, you know, are, are actually pretty scholarly? Um, what about case books? What about, what about filing amicus briefs? Some of those require a great deal of research. Um, and schools say, well, those are, that's good you're doing those things. Um, but, you know, what's going on with your writing? You seem, you seem to have slowed down in the article. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing I've noticed when it comes to, like, even something like case books where it's like, I think you're totally right, that you certainly get less 
uh, institutional credit for case books than for an article for reasons that are still kind of unclear to me. But what I found most ironic is that, you know, if you publish a case book with a commercial publisher, you get at least some academic credit. Whereas if you do open source case books, you basically get none, which I find really, kind, I mean, frustrating and ironic. I mean, it doesn't mean I'm going to publish a commercial case book anyway, but it really seems like those kinds of metrics ought to be challenged. I mean, you know, we ought to be encouraging professors to provide materials that students have to pay, don't have to pay an arm and a leg. I, for. I agree with you completely, which, which is quite scary. Um, but the, uh, just kidding. The, the, <laughs> the problem I have is that that requires some serious conversation about what we mean by scholarship or what we as a school value. And I think schools are very uncomfortable doing that because that means there has to be a discussion of what's important and what's not. And that's, that creates some battles. So one of the reasons I'm, I'm anonymous is I get no credit for any of this. <laughs> um, and I do mm -hmm. that deliberately. I, I wanted to make sure that it was understood that it was only the ideas that I pose that, that matter. Um, and, mm -hmm. and not, not, I'm not doing it for, for reasons of pay raise or whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so in closing, I just wanted to observe that like, it seems like a lot of these problems and objections to these hierarchies are things that have surfaced time and again over the years, but that maybe there's a kind of amplification in recent years, especially as kind of access to social media tools for kind of spreading uh, ideas and kind of uh, sort of amplifying ideas in a kind of social context have have increased. Do you think this is a moment where some kinds of change are potentially more viable or are we going to see the bubble burst again and things just go back? Oh to man, I tell you, when I did research for this article, um, I looked back and the number of times that I saw great discussions about the legal education at the crossroads or at the precipice or on the brink or Thelma Louisiana over a cliff. Um, it was, it, it's, it's very frequent. So I think this is sort of a historical cycle. And I think it always tends to come back to the equilibrium point of, of having this hierarchy. And I, that's the problem with hierarchies. They're, they're, they're endemic. They're, they're feedback mechanisms. Yeah. Yeah, endemic and very unfortunately resilient as well. Indeed. So I look forward to frydownload.com when it <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think James James Grimmelman beat me to the punch with uh, law archives. So I guess I should be pushing that heavier because it seems like a pretty great platform. And of course, he's always really forward thinking when it comes to that. Well, kind Bush of stuff. would tell me that there should be competition among the platforms. <laughs> there, there we go. <clears throat> competition among open access platforms for sure. Well, thanks so much for coming on the program. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and uh, getting some of these ideas well, out there. Thank you, Brian, for having this and for doing this. I look forward to all your episodes. sandwiches have you got? Let's see. We got bologna. We have grilled cheese and bacon, yeah. Swiss cheese on rye, liverwurst, 
And sardines. Sardines, sardines. Hey, that sounds good. Have you got those good, firm, meaty sardines? Oh, you mean the ones caught in Camden, Maine? Yeah. The only kind we use. Makes a sardine sandwich worth eating. Yeah, I sure hate them when they're all bread. Most of our customers say our sardine sandwiches are the best in town. Oh, no, they're not. Huh? My wife's are. She uses Maine sardines, too. Well, what'll it be today? I don't know. What kind of sandwiches have you got? Uh, let's see. We got salami, egg salad, pastrami, ham and cheese, sardines. Yeah, okay, sardines. But don't give me those skinny little ones. I know. You want the ones caught and canned in the state of Maine. Right. They're meatier. They sure are. I like to know what I'm eating. Only kind to use for a sandwich. With Maine sardines, you get something to sink your teeth into. A real he-man sandwich. And it's got lots of taste, too. Hey, I'm hungry. Where's my sandwich? One Maine sardine sandwich! Hi, Hank. What kind of sandwiches have you got today? Well, uh, how about a nice sardine sandwich? Sardine. Oh, bacon and egg, grilled cheese, salami. Yeah, yeah, give me sardine on a roll, but make sure I can find the sardines. Every day we go through the same bit, and every day I gotta tell you we use Maine sardines. They're meatier, got more flavor. They make the best sardine sandwiches. They are good, yes. Maine sardines, that means they come from the state of Maine, huh? That's right. Sardines caught and canned in the state of Maine. Here, enjoy it. Sure will. Hi, Hank. What kind of sandwiches you've got today? Look, mister, why don't you just order a sardine sandwich? Yeah, come to think of it, your sardine sandwiches are really good. Some places you can't even find the sardines in the sandwich, but mm -hmm. here you get a good, meaty sandwich. Lots of flavor, too. That what you want? Yes, that's because you fellas know to use Maine sardines for sandwiches. Yeah, that's right. That what you want? Those Maine sardines sure make the best sardine sandwiches. Listen, I haven't got all day. You want a sardine sandwich? i tell you what. Give me a sandwich of Maine sardines on rye. 